Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, April 22nd, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. For this Wildcard Wednesday, we have a really special guest and all-around amazing investor with us, Bill Mann, who is going to break down what it means to be an international investor. Bill, thank you so much for joining. Emily, how are you doing? I'm I'm hanging in there amidst this crisis. How about yourself? Well, you know, the 15 hours uh, that I spend awake uh, at my home today is a lot like the 15 hours I spent awake at my home yesterday. But you you know, really, like nothing to complain about. I mean, absolutely <laughs> nothing. I think for a lot of our listeners, this might be the first day in a while that they've realized, you know, what day of the week it was. It's Wild Card Wednesday. So for everybody who's unaware, only knows their days by what industry focus episode it is, I'm right there along with you. A friend of mine has started calling the days all Blur's Day, and I think that I'm going to adopt that. So it's Blur's Day, the 22nd of... I guess this is April still, right? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, Bill, I, I know from plenty of Motley Fool marketing materials that you are our most seasoned international investor. So I guess that would mean that the perspective we're going to provide on this show is maybe a little bit biased towards international investing. Uh, but as Chris Hill likes to say, this is a free show. So um, I'd like to just kick it to you with a, with a broad question, which is really, what does it mean to be an international investor? It really doesn't mean much, and, 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 and in some ways, every investor is an international investor, even if you own stocks that are only domiciled in the United States. There are a lot of companies, Coca-Cola, for example, has more than half of its revenues that come from overseas. Aflac has more than 90% of its revenues come from overseas, even though it is based in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, But to be an international investor means that you are specifically looking outside of the United States for investing opportunities. Now, why would one do that? The United States is, of course, the uh, the largest economy in the world. It is the most diversified broadly in the world. There are a couple of reasons why I would suggest that one would want to become an international investor. The first of which is that growth rates in the United States, even before the COVID-19, are almost guaranteed to be low for, for because we are a developed economy. There are amazing economies that are growing at 9, 10, 12% per year and will do so for decades. In Indonesia, for example, they went from 30 million people in the middle class in 2000 to 200 million people in the middle class today. So those are some of the areas where you feel like you could get exposure to opportunities that are simply different from the ones that are available in the U.S. So personal finance is a little bit of my my enjoyable side hobby here, although if you can call it a side hobby, it really is related to my, my day job, which is obviously investing here at The Motley Fool. But the argument I hear a lot with people who are deep into the personal finance space is that buying a you know total stock market index fund or, or a US-based index fund 
that tracks the major U.S. companies provides enough international exposure for exactly that reason you mentioned earlier, which is to say companies like Aflac, like Google, like Amazon, they, they are big companies and based here in the U.S. that have a lot of international exposure. Do you think that investors need to be going out of their way to get international exposure to tap on some of these growing economies? Yes, I think that I, I think that they do for 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 one primary reason. Yes, you can get plenty of exposure uh, investing in U.S. companies, but you are still only singularly exposed to the U.S. stock market. The best performing market over the last ten years in the world. Okay, let's say the best. So maybe you know Venezuela has done better of the major <laughs> markets in the world. And you can get pretty far down uh, and still call it the major. It's the S and P 500 has outperformed everything else. And before we the the COVID nineteen crisis hit this country, we were trading in the U S on an historical high multiple to uh, to to at almost any point in the past. One of the reasons why the market has come down so sharply is that it was literally discounting almost no risks going forward. Foreign markets have not performed in the same way. They had not, over the last decade, risen as quickly as U.S. markets had done. They were not as at as high multiples. And it means that the other part of that coin that I think tends to be missed by the more academic thoughts of, about investing is that your long-term returns are based on the price you pay for equities or you know whatever instrument you're th th that you're owning, along with those qualities, right? In aggregate, it's just those qualities. But I'm not investing in aggregate, and you're not in investing in aggregate. You are actually choosing companies in countries, and so having opportunities to invest in some unbelievable countries, um, unbelievable companies at a lower multiple. That is simply, I mean, that is a margin of safety that in a lot of ways has not existed in the U.S. for a while. So maybe buy the U.S. aggregate funds, right? So like index funds, but diversify your portfolio with some smaller international companies that you wouldn't otherwise get exposure to. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, and 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 some of these things are are opportunities. Although the U.S. is the most diverse, there are opportunities that are in other markets that just don't exist here. So, like for example, uh, a company that we have in the global gains portfolio, global partners portfolio, excuse me, is uh, is a company called Backafrost, and they're based in the Faroe Islands, which is a, which is an island country of about a hundred thousand people, but it is literally the Saudi Arabia of salmon. They have the <laughs> absolute perfect environment to to farm salmon they have fjords they have an incredibly well structured ecology well regulated they have the highest price points for salmon in the world you can't get it in the US you have to you have to get exposure to something like that through Backafrost which is a Faroese company that trades in Norway it's not that hard to do. I mean, there's some steps involved, but this is this is not something that is available in the U.S. markets at all. And I don't mean just necessarily the company is not available, but that type of opportunity is not available. But but Bill, aren't you worried about a salmon pullback in the same way we saw the oil pullback over the past few months? No. When, when's yes, the I salmon am, yeah. crisis coming? Well, the salmon crisis actually happened. Uh, oh, so, really? 
Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, it, it, anytime you're dealing with something that is, uh, you know, that that has commodity pricing attached to it, you have to know that ultimately the commodity is going to drive the short term. But over the long term, I'll, I'll talk about. So there was a um, uh, there there was a um, an algae bloom that you know that destroyed huge amounts of the of 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 the. Uh, um, the salmon crop. Do you call them a crop? You call it a, a <laughs> harvest. Yeah, you don't plant salmon. Uh, harvest in, in in a year. But here's the thing. So salmon is the most dense. Hey, you like how we've tra- we've we've transitioned straight to salmon? I know. I love this. Now we're talking about salmon. It is the densest calorie protein uh, available by far. Uh, you know of 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 all of the meats. Is in salmon because of the oils, uh, thing, uh, things of that nature. Sam, farmed salmon's biggest competition is wild caught salmon. And wild caught salmon, the market is absolutely positively fixed. If you fish any more than, it, than, than is being fished now, you are overfishing and you are destroying future harvests. So you have, you have a crop. You have a harvest, you have a commodity that is increasing in demand, and the largest competitor is absolutely fixed. So, yes, on a year-to-year basis, there are, you know, there, there, are, there are things that happen, but in the long term, you're just talking about something that is going to be more valuable next year, the year after that, and the year after that, and it is not available for trade in the United States. I love how I uh, tried to pull your leg there a little bit with the salmon <laughs> crisis. And man, you put me in your place and my place <laughs> with your response. Sorry. I, I, no, I absolutely <laughs> love it. This is, it. It's really great. Um, and and I, I, you mentioned there at the very end, it's not available for trade in U.S. markets. So let's say I am convinced about your salmon proposal, Bill. How do I go about buying a company like Baca Frost in international markets? So it trades in Norway, and and this is where it gets a little dicey for people. And and by the way, when we talk about international investing, and we'll we'll talk about the vehicles in just a few minutes, there are hundreds of companies that are really easy to buy in the United States that are that are international. Some like a Shopify, for example, you might not even know is international. Uh, but in this case, what you'll want to do, the primary way that you would do it is you would buy it through your broker on the on the Norwegian exchange. Some brokers have this capability. E-Trade does. Uh, no, excuse me. It's Schwab. Yeah, Schwab Fidelity E-Trade Interactive Brokers. TD Ameritrade doesn't have it. So there you go. It's just you know an, another impediment. It's another place that if you go through the steps to get set up, you suddenly go from the U.S. market that has six thousand companies available to international markets with. 100,000 companies available for purchase. So that's that's the type of breadth that is available to you outside of the United States. And and you said you want to talk a little bit about the avenues for which you can purchase companies. Let's say I have all of my assets with TD Ameritrade. I yep. want to get international exposure, but I, I'm not willing to switch my broker. Am, am I giving up any international exposure, or do I still have options? You're giving up a lot. You're giving up certain amounts of flexibility. And I'm not saying anything about TD Ameritrade. It's actually, it's funny, because if you talk to people who are outside of the United States in some of the more uh, multicultural international um, societies, like people in London, for example, or people in Australia, or people in, in Dubai, 
they can buy things anywhere in the world. I mean, they have their brokers are are built for giving people exposure to anywhere. U.S. brokers, almost all of their business is on the U.S. exchanges, so they don't really have the same motivation. But you can get uh, you can get exposure with certain brokers. But if those are not available to you or are not attractive to you, because there are a couple of hoops, uh, and it can be the the uh, trading costs can be a little bit higher because you have to pay the foreign brokers trading costs. There are things called ADRs. It's an American depository receipt. uh, And hundreds of companies are available uh, through ADR. A lot of the Chinese companies that we talk about, uh, a lot of European companies, even South American companies like Mercado Libre based in Argentina uh, are available on the New York Stock Exchange or uh, uh, you know through the major exchanges here in the US because they have something called an ADR uh, and buying those is the exact same as buying an American stock. Yeah, so so if I were to go out and buy an American depository receipts an ADR of a company like Mercado Libre would that would I expect for that value to move in flux with the value of Mercado Libre? Is it is it essentially the same thing as buying a share of a company? It's it's essentially the same thing as buying a share of a company. So when you call it an, an ADR, you, you know if you look at your brokerage account, you will notice exactly nothing different. Or if you do see anything different, it'll say ADR and then some little code after it. It is it is almost exactly the same thing as buying stock on on on, on the home exchange. Um, there are small fees that you have to pay to hold ADRs. Um, you almost don't notice them, though they are real. Um, yeah, but it is it is in every way uh, pretty much the same. If you are buying ones that are on the major exchanges, there are also and we could go down the rabbit hole a little bit things called unsponsored ADRs, which you tend to see on the pink sheets. So Volkswagen, for example, has an unsponsored ADR, which means that the company uh, doesn't really have anything to do with this security. It's basically, it's literally someone has gone to Germany, bought 50,000 shares, and they deposited them in a bank in the U.S., and you're buying and trading those shares. And those can detach a little bit from the underlying value of, 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 of the shares of the home company. Um, it's not a huge risk. Like it's, it, 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 that sounds a little shady the way I, you know, the way I described it. Like, Psst, hey, want to buy a stock? But, it sounds uh, like you a know, great business opportunity. I should head over to Germany. <laughs> Yeah, for sure, right? Just put a bunch of put a bunch of uh, certificates if we could get to Germany anymore um, and bring them back. But yeah, it's, that's literally how it happens. Those are a little bit different, but we're talking about ones that are on the major exchanges. But you do have access to a bunch of companies that way. And and moving on to what you think about when you choose to invest in international companies. Let's say I'm I'm sold here. I think I should have some international exposure. I'm I'm gonna you know switch my accounts if I don't already have them set up with a company that will allow me to buy some of these international companies, but then I'm stuck. Like, how do I analyze an international company? Uh, what do you look for when you're making decisions about investing in international companies? Is it different than investing in U.S. ones? Not really. I mean, actually, not really. There are certain things that are different. Uh, a lot of international companies have something called currency risk, and a lot of people build the currency risk into into their models when they are evaluating a company. I don't happen to do that because I assume that the that 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 a currency, if you've got a profitable company, 
that they are going to be able to withstand. They are amongst the best hedges against currency risk that there are. But people do build those in. It does add a little bit of volatility for a, you know for a company that's that does that conducts its business in yen or renminbi or rupees or pounds or euros, whatever it may be. Uh, pesos. Uh, I'm just see how many currencies I can name in ten seconds. Uh, so that is. So that is one element that you you might want to build in. I don't happen to. The thing that I do build in is I assume that as an international investor that I am that I am investing in a country that has a lower level of protection for outside shareholders, in particular foreign outside shareholders. And so I just build in a little bit larger of a margin of safety. So if I had a the exact same company doing the exact same same thing in the United States, I might let it have a little bit of a valuation premium over most international companies. But but literally that's it. I mean, they're doing the same thing. They're trying to make money. They're taking assets and trying to turn them into more assets. They are trying to grow their businesses. They're just doing it in places like Jakarta instead of Cleveland. And and maybe just more broadly, how do you even get to know a company that you may not see or use every day? So you, you talk about Baca Frost, but you know I've I've likely never went and caught salmon. I've never seen Baca Frost in action the same way that I see Amazon in action or Starbucks in action. So how do you get to know international companies the same way you get to know U.S. companies? Yeah, it's a little bit harder actually because if you think about uh, Jason Zweig, who's a famous author, he did a book called Your Money in Your Brain, said that. They did a study of of investors and what banks they owned, and by and large, portfolio individual investors who had a portfolio that had a bank in it, the bank had a branch within sixty miles of the uh, of the investor's house, eighty percent of the time. So if you live in so if you live in Virginia like we do, it's much harder to do a comparison for a bank that's in Oregon. So. Mm-hmm. Foreign companies are not so different, uh, but you can analyze. You know, so getting to know them is a little bit more of a challenge, particularly ones that don't have huge presences in the United States. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, don't worry about ones that don't have presences in the United States. You know, like it's, it's not, it's it's not necessary that you go out and invest in things that you have no ability to analyze. Right, you just you don't have to do it, but there are a lot of really, really credible international companies that are doing big things in the United States, and they don't necessarily have to be consumer facing. I mean, Siemens is a German company, and you know, and and, and Fanuc is a robot company from from uh, you know from from Japan. I mean, they they are they are big parts of our economy now. Yeah, I, I actually came on before I was hosting Industry Focus. I came on with Jason Moser. I think it was during Consumer Goods last year to talk about a Chinese company that I really like. It's called Heidi Lao Hot Pot. Um, and they run a chain of very, very expensive and popular hot pot restaurants in the US. And uh, I did a lot of research and then I discovered that they actually have some here in, in the US, in addition to those in China. So I've, I've found that interesting that there are, in fact, a lot of foreign companies 
that are it was listed in Hong Kong. You can really only buy it over the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, but they still have some consumer facing presences here in the U.S. So, yeah, again, oh, yeah. if you're, if you're yeah. not comfortable investing in a company that you can't see, there are options out there for companies that you can see the impact of. Alibaba serves the U.S. and Heidi Lau quite literally can serve you food here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, but though it's though it's uh, it, it's a Hong Kong listed company. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, and. And I know that we're, we're going to be doing an episode on fraud and trust, especially as it relates to international companies later on. Um, but broadly, I know the question we get from a lot of people when investing in international companies is, how do you trust them? And, and if you don't trust them completely, how do you reconcile that with investing money in them? So a lot of this comes up because there, there in particular, there was one company that's well known to a lot of uh, Motley Fool members called Luck and Coffee. Mm-hmm. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, gosh, a couple of weeks, a couple of years. No, it was early, early April. But it feels like um, a couple of years. <laughs> I know, eleventy six years ago. It is what you know. What day is it? It's Blur's Day, April nine hundred sixty third. So on April second. Luck and Coffee came out, and they and and they disclosed that about sixty percent of their revenues from twenty nineteen had been fabricated, and the stock immediately dropped eighty four percent. This was terrible. This was an absolutely terrible thing that that happened, and immediately because Chinese companies a decade ago uh, had. Um, had come public in the U.S. through something called a reverse merger, and you know basically had ripped off U.S. investors. People were like, "Oh, China's not to be trusted." The thing that was interesting th- to me about uh, about Luck and Coffee is that they came and made a filing that disclosed the fraud. They talked about what they were doing. So obviously the fraud was terrible, but this didn't exist 10 years ago. 10 years ago, the companies just said, no, 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 no. And then they just delisted from the US and disappeared. There is a great level of improvement, I think, in Chinese companies, but people are still rightly asking the question. I actually think the fact that we are seeing frauds come up through an official channel is meaningful in a, in a oddly, in a, in, in a positive way. You know, a lot of people think about the U.S., you know, I'll, I'll say, well, I don't trust, I don't trust uh, foreign companies. I don't trust foreign frauds. If you look at a lot of countries, things like stock options are not used in the same way that, that, that they are here in the United States. And some companies, and some companies that we like and admire, dilute their shareholders three, four, and five percent every single year. Now, that's not oh, fraud. I, I invest in the cannabis space, so I know that well. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's not fraud. That is, that is part of their business model is to pay their employees and their management with new equity. So, you're being diluted year in and year out. Almost no foreign countries have a dilution table, a dilution speed, the same speed that happens in the United States. And that dilution is guaranteed. So I ask you, you know, don't trust foreign companies, don't necessarily trust the regulations. There are things about investing in foreign countries where there are risks that are lower than than in the United States. Well, Bill, I, I really appreciate the time that you've taken to talk with us through international investing. And I know that fraud is such a bigger topic. And and right after we finish recording this, I know we're going to go ahead and roll into recording another Wildcard Wednesday episode that's going to be released next month in May. 
digging into that fraud more, but thank you for the time that you've given me today. It, it really has been educational. Emily, it's so fun to spend this time with you and be safe. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions, just shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com, or feel free to tweet us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the screen today. For Bill Mann, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.